The first reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, starting at verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. And touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Thanks, Larry. Let me have my welcome. My name's uh, Matt, Matt Fuller. If we've not met, love does not envy, love does not boast. It is not proud. It does dis- not dishonor others. Father, we might be able to come up with that definition ourselves. That love doesn't envy. It's not a good thing to envy. It's not a good thing to boast. We know that. But Father, help us understand it. Help us understand where those truths lurk in our own hearts, we pray. And by your word, give us power to change, to live differently as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you saw it, there was a fun documentary on uh, Channel 4 a couple of weeks ago, and Michael Crick did it, uh, Boris versus Dave, uh, loosely sort of referenced to the the, uh, European referendum, but basically just good telly, contrasting uh, these two men. It's quite an easy thing to do in one sense, Uh, only a couple of years different, same school, same university, same party, enter parliament at the same time, both want the same job, one gets there first, the other knocks him out of office, maybe, Uh, whatever it is. It was quite, it was was a very enjoyable thing to watch. Um, And uh, one of the commentators, Isabel Oakeshott, one of their biographers, unofficial biographers, um, she had one, I think, one of the juicier comments during uh, the documentary. She quoted one colleague who knows them both intimately and uh, said, who said this, yes, I've seen them looking at one another and I've sensed Boris thinking, oh, Dave is taller, he's better looking, he says the right thing, he doesn't put his foot in his mouth. But then there are times when David Cameron looks at Boris and I know he's thinking to himself, good grief, the man's a magician. In a million years, no matter how hard I work, there's no way I'd be able to produce that kind of stardust. And also, Boris looks at Dave and thinks, how did he get there first? I am a hundred times cleverer than that man, apparently. Apparently, this is what they think. Well, I don't know about that. Of course, these are all slightly summation and... um, but it is a good media story, and always the contrast, it kind of works in that setting. But undoubtedly, there is some sense of rivalry between those two men. Some sense of envy, and I think at the moment, not a lot of love uh, between the two of them in their public pronouncements. 
We're in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, and working our way incredibly slowly through it. Uh, And we come uh, to the second half of verse 4 today. We said before that these are not actually um, adjectives or, or nouns, rather. These are verbs. So you might translate the second half like this. Love does not burn with envy. Love does not brag. Love is not puffed up. Love does not do those things. Love wants to put the spotlight on other people and raise them up and see them praised and see them elevated. Love does not want the spotlight on itself. Pride, envy, boasting wants the spotlight on self, on me. And love is not like that. As I said, we're spending a few weeks in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. That might have been a mistake personally, I think, but you know, you can make your mind up of that at the end of the series. Uh, but personally, I, well, I just find it a lot more, I'm a lot more comfortable preaching through books of the Bible in a go and passages. I find it much harder to preach on a word or three. Um, uh, but more to the point, I think you come to a series such as this and spend time on love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. And there is a greater chance for me to pronounce with hypocrisy than on most things. But fortunately, I'm not alone. I think you're with me. So we might get over that. We said the Corinthian church then are a remarkably gifted church that Paul had planted. Sensationally gifted, but if when we've read through the letter, he can tell them in chapter 3 they're jealous. In chapter 4 they're proud. In chapter 4 they're arrogant. In chapter 5 they're boastful. In chapter 6 they lack forgiveness. In chapter 8 they are puffed up. In chapter 10 they seek themselves, not others. In chapter 11, they humiliate others. So this is quite a pointed chapter in chapter 13. Uh, We've said over the last few weeks, really how it works like this is verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13 are on the necessity of love. You are nothing without it. Uh, We're spending our time now in verses 4 to 7. That's the definition of love. And then uh, in a few weeks' time, we get to 8 to 13, which is the... um, the permanence of love. Now these verses then, 4 to 7, where love is defined, you get, uh, what, 15, you might say, definitions of love. A third of them really concentrate on the idea of love's patience, which is where we focused last time. About a third of these, you might argue, concentrate in that direction. Love doesn't give up. Love always perseveres. Love is patient. Probably about a third of these definitions focus on that. Just keep going, just keep going. And then you'd have to say at least a third focus on humility. And that's where we're at today. So love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. Love is humble. So what we're going to do is sort of define some of these terms briefly, and then I want to see how Jesus handles them. So we'll turn elsewhere to Matthew chapter 20. Okay, you've got to cut it like this. Uh, Three little points. Humans fight for their status. Jesus modeled selfless service. And so you need to shout for mercy. That's how we're going to go through it, okay? Humans fight for their status. By contrast, Jesus models selfless service, so shout for mercy. First, humans fight for their status. 
Here we are in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, it's clear in Corinth that some of them thought they were far more impressive than others, and it was producing pride, envy, boasting. This whole section, really, of chapters 12 to 14, people are showing off about how gifted they are in relation to others. You just might turn back a page and chapter 12 and verse 21. Paul gives this metaphor of the body, that the church family is a body, and we've got a different role to play. Some might be a hand, a nose, an ear, an eye, a foot, whatever it may be. And verse 21, look, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. You can't say to someone in a church family, I'm important to you or not. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. You can't do that. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. The parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. So look, don't boast about how gifted you are, how impressive you are, and think that others, some in the church family, well, let's be honest, they're a bit of a waste of space and we don't need them. Don't do that. He's saying love does not do that. Let's take a brief look at some of these words. So uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 4, love does not envy, it does not boast. Now, both of those, in one sense, are a response to success. Envy. How do you respond to the success of others? If others are successful and you are not, well, you might envy. And by contrast, boasting. What do you do if you're successful? How do you handle that? How do you proclaim that? How do you tell other people? So I guess they're, they're, they're clearly quite related. Envy, though. Now, there's a gentle sense to envy, I think, in a sort of mild sense that doesn't really matter a, a great deal. I, I envy his shirt. It's a nice shirt. It doesn't really matter. I envy her hair. Isn't it lovely? I mean, there's a sort of gentle sense to that, which may not matter. We've uh, Charles Wesley. He said, there's one song I really wish I wrote. Do you know which one it is? Well, there we go. The, um, it was Isaac Watts, which we just did, When I Survey. It's sort of a gentle, like, I really wish I'd written that one. It's a cracker, said Charles Wesley. Gentle, it's a sort of gentle envy. But here the word is a bit more intense. It's a sort of xylos, it's a zealous, it's a, it's a burn with envy is a good way of translating it. It's not, oh, I'd quite like that. It's he's got it, I want it, I don't want him to have it. There's a bit of force to it. I say biblically, we took uh, uh, a couple of months ago a good example of this when we were working our way through the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3, two women come before Solomon. Two women have had babies, one baby has died. So you've got a true mother and another woman who is contesting. Says, my baby, my baby, when it's not, hers has died. And Solomon says, what do we do about this? He says, I know what we do. We'll cut cut the baby in half and give half to each woman. And the mother says, no, don't do that. And the other woman says, yeah, fine. Because as long as she hasn't got a baby, I don't mind. That's envy. That's a pretty strong, unpleasant envy, isn't it? It's not just I want it, it's I don't want them to have it. I can't bear it if they're successful and I'm not. I don't just want the same success, I want them to lose. It's a burn with envy. Oscar Wilde, one of his witticisms, put it this way, anyone can sympathize with the sufferings of a friend. It requires a very fine nature to sympathize with a friend's success. Anyone can sympathize with suffering, but if a friend, a peer, is successful, sometimes. I guess the question to ask is, 
How do you feel when someone of equal or less ability advances beyond you? How do you feel when that happens in the workplace? How do you feel when someone considerably more immoral immoral than you, who's behaved appallingly, gets the beautiful family and you don't? Envy. Boasting, by contrast, slightly different. Uh, One man put it this way, I quite like this. Boasting or bragging is our own private advertising business, our own little campaign to publicize an image of ourselves. So boasting is just everyone has their own PR company of themselves. Now, some here work in PR, and obviously you know how it works. Your your job is to project a favorable image of your clients. Therefore, if something goes well with your client, you sing about it. You make sure it hits the press. You make sure the papers pick up on it. Of course you do. If something goes badly with a client, you just bury it a little bit. You just go quiet on it. And you might even be asked, oh, the, the, the numbers are very bad for the last quarter, aren't they? Well, well, of course, there are mitigating circumstances for that. You just need to, you know, it's not, it's not as bad as it looks. It's not the company's fault. Everyone else is doing really badly. It's, you know, it's fine. And we all do that. So something goes well in our lives. We project, we project it. We proclaim it on Facebook most of the time these days. Look where I am on holiday Look at my view from my balcony, isn't it? Magnificent? Whatever it may be. Look at, look at my success. Look at my children. They've done something good. I won't photograph them when they're misbehaving, but look at them now when they're golden. Uh, we see that's the sort of thing we project. We project the good news, and things go badly. We'll just, just, just go quiet on that. No one proclaims, I didn't get the job I went for. I failed an exam today. I said something rude about someone and they overheard me. It was dreadfully embarrassing. I was revealed to not be as quite as nice a person as you all think I am. No, no, we don't do that. We might be exposed. We do say something that we regret and people overhear it. And we say, well, there are mitigating circumstances. I didn't sleep too well last night. It was just, you know, everyone does that. We're just the same. We know PR. You don't have to be employed in PR to do PR. We do it ourselves, instinctively, for ourselves. Maybe not very well. Maybe you ought to hire someone. Maybe it will go better that way. But, but we do. That's what we do. It's instinctive. Naturally, we boast. It is very rare to be like the Apostle Paul. He writes later on 2 Corinthians 12. I don't want you to think too highly of me. Not many go through life that way. All right, Don Carson commented, most people go through life concerned that others will think too little of them. Paul was concerned that others, others would think too much of him. It's telling, isn't it? Most people go through life concerned that people will think too little of them. Paul was concerned that others would think too much of him. Couldn't chase it down. Phil Alcock tells me that actually Don Carson wrote that also of his father. In the biography, he wrote of his father. Isn't that lovely? He went through life. Don't think too much of me. Don't think too much. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Is not proud. What about this one? It does not dishonor others. Look down upon others. Treat others contemptibly. 
Have you, you know, it's easy to go through life and think, are these people useful or not to be? Uh, are they useful to a stepping stone? It's obvious. You, you see it in some people, don't you? Uh, they go through, is this person useful to me? Oh, well, I'll gravitate. I'll work the room. Is this people, are these people useful, useful to me? No, we'll stuff them. I'm just not interested. I've got no time for them. This week I visited a, um, uh, a bloke in the city. I guess he's a senior partner in his, his firm. And uh, I think what struck me uh, visiting him was how he treated everyone else, how he treated the cleaner with courtesy, how he treated the doorman with kindness and respect. And you think, you're a good man. You're a good man. You don't look down upon others. You don't dishonor others. You care about others. They earn whatever, one thousandth of what you do. I don't know. Probably not that much. But anyway, good. It's lovely to see. Something very impressive in that. Now let's see these illustrated. Turn back with me, if you will, to um, uh, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 on page 988. Love does not envy, it does not boast or brag, it does not dishonor others. Let's see uh, Jesus handling this in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 20. Because really Matthew chapter 20 is a fight for status. Verses uh, 20 to 28, that little section, there gets the heading here, a mother's request. It's a fight for status pretty much from everyone involved apart from Jesus. So first of all, you get the sons of Zebedee, uh, uh, chapter 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's uh, James and John were told earlier, uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Well, there we go. There's James and John asking for the most prominent position. They're just pushing themselves forward. Well, in fact, it's not them, is it? It's their mother. And let's be honest, it's always a little bit embarrassing when your mother has to ring up the boss and ask for a promotion. Can you promote my son? But that's a bit embarrassing. You're not in good shape if that happens. But anyway, they soon get involved because Jesus asks them. Well, they say, uh, what is it you want? He asks them, verse 21, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. Jesus says, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? That is the cup of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 22, the cup is always consistently God's just punishment upon the sins of the world. Can you drink that cup? Yep. Yep, I can do that. Yeah, they say, we can do that. Yeah, we've been hanging around you. Yeah, no problem. No problem. We can do that, they say, with self-confidence. That's a, that's a reckless boasting, isn't it? That's the man going into the interview. Can you, can you fly this jet fighter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done it on, done it on the, uh, done it on the um, uh, computer. Done it on the uh, iPad. Yeah, I can do that. I can fly. I can fly a jet plane. No problem. This is a reckless self-assertion. They're boasting. Yeah, we can do that. So you get these two, and then you get the others. Verse 24. When the other ten disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Well, that's just a normal human envy. What? Jesus, we don't mind you sitting on a throne, but not them. They're just like us. We don't want them elevated above us. That's just very typical of envy. We envy those who are close to us, not those who are miles away. 
So if you are a student at the Royal Academy of Music, you don't tend to envy Sir Simon Rattle. Is he the best conductor in the world? Well, I don't know. He thinks so. Uh, but um, you don't envy him. He's just miles ahead of you. But if you're a student at the Royal Academy of one of your peers gets a position in a nice London orchestra, you don't like it. That's their success, potentially at your expense. We don't like that. If you're the junior solicitor serving your, um, uh, your training contract, you tend not to probably envy the managing partner. He's just light years away from you. But it's just those who get the jobs. Well, for your junior, it's those who get promoted before you. He's got promoted before me? Well, that's ridiculous. I'm a hundred times more intelligent than him. It's those we envy. It's our peers we find hard. So temptation comes to envy those of a similar age and stage. So it's our peers or those close to us. Those are the ones we envy their house. We envy the number of children they have. We envy their holidays. Not people 30 years older than us. What we just expect is different. And the funny thing about envy, you can very quickly move from envying someone's stuff to resenting them. Okay. Loads of Bible examples of this. But Joseph's brothers is an obvious one. They don't like the fact that Jacob loves Joseph more than the rest of them. Why is he elevated? We don't like that. They have been envious of that. Then Joseph has dreams and says, well, you'll all be bowing down to me. They really don't like that. What, you're going to be elevated above us? And they move from envying him to hating him to wanting him dead. And sometimes that's the path if unless you check it envy can follow have you ever known that so it's a bit like uh dorothy's much better at this job than me oh, well there it is i'm really annoyed by the fact that dorothy can do the job much faster than i can and much more efficiently i just find that annoying I hate Dorothy. She just winds me up. She's so smug at the way she goes around the office. I hate her. Yeah, she's bogged it up. She's got it wrong. She's made a mistake and everyone sees that she's not perfect after all. Yes. And that's sort of, the, you know, it's never quite as crass as that. Of course it's not as crass as that. But we move from slightly resenting someone's stuff someone's thing, someone's possession, someone's gift, someone's family, to resenting them. That's how it tends to operate. A number of years ago, I read a McCart- uh, an interview with Paul McCartney. He uh, admitted he'd reached a stage in his career where uh, he said, quote, I just hated it if John Lennon was successful. Every time he had a hit... It was a dagger to my heart. But they returned the favour. John Lennon hated McCartney. In 1980, McCartney was arrested in Tokyo for possessing drugs. And apparently John Lennon threw a party to celebrate that his friend had uh, been caught out. You just move from resenting, being irritated with your peers to, to really annoying them. Look, humans fight for status. That's very normal, very natural in one way or another. Let's push on, though, to look at something a bit better. Jesus models selfless service. Still in Matthew 20, his way is very different. Let me read verses 25 to the end of that little section. 
Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, had to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 28, I guess, is one of the bluntest statements of Jesus' self-understanding. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we may be very, very familiar with that, conceptually and biblically. Ransom. Someone is kidnapped, enslaved. Someone else pays the cost to have them released. And of course, biblically, humanity is enslaved to sin. We can't get out of it. To death, that is our destiny. We're enslaved. And Jesus comes and pays the price. Takes the wrath of God, takes the punishment of God. Endures death physically, spiritually for us. So that we're liberated so we can go free. No competition there. No sense of envy. No boasting. He was not proud. Jesus came and didn't live for himself. He lived for others. And Jesus says that's where greatness is to be found. Greatness is not found, he would say, dining on white tablecloths. Greatness may be found in serving at those tables putting aside your envy, your boasting, loving others. So Jesus models a different way of selfless service. What do we need to move in that direction? Well, you want to be like these last two men in verses 29 to 34. You want to shout for mercy. Verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they'd heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. Well, I could stop. Now notice a couple of things here. Notice, first of all, their request and Jesus' response. So you've got these two blind men screaming for mercy. The crowd tells them to shut up, but they are just shouting and jumping around like hecklers at a Brexit rally, like uh, 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 groupies at a One Direction concert. They're dancing and shouting around, desperate to be heard, and they ask for what they didn't deserve from Jesus. They ask for mercy. It's very striking, verse 32. It's slightly um, hidden here. But Jesus asks precisely the same question as he asked of, the, of the, the sons of Zebedee. Verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 21, what is it you want? What do you want me to do for you? Literally, verse 21. Well, the sons of Zebedee want status. They want to boast about what they've, where they're going to be called to. These two blind men, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. We just want our sight. She's all mercy. If you've got a problem, you just want it fixed, and you're not concerned with boasting about who you are and what you've got. The man in hospital in chronic pain, in chronic pain, you know, is just morphined up beyond the clicker. 
He doesn't lie there in bed saying, can I just tell you about how wealthy I am? Can I tell you what I've done in my career? Can I tell you how wonderful all my grandchildren are? He doesn't. The man in chronic pain just says, get me the doctor. There's something wrong. Sort it out. That's all he's concerned with. The person who has a moral problem doesn't boast, isn't concerned with what others have got. The man who has a moral problem, who knows they need help, says, I just need mercy. I need mercy from Jesus. Now, if you forget, if you forget that you've got a need, if you forget you've got a problem, if you think you're something, you may boast. You may be envious. You may look around. What have I got? What have they got? I'm not so sure about that. But if you know you've got a deep need and you know there's someone in Jesus Christ who meets your need, that's what concerns you. Or or to put it in other other terms, it is impossible to boast about who you are and what you've done and to proclaim Jesus as a wonderful saviour. Either the spotlight is on you or it's on him. But it can never be on both. If you know you have a deep moral need, if you know the depth of your sin and you know you're facing God's just judgment upon your life, then you're all about him and what he's done for you. If you think you're fine, well, you can boast about who you are. You can boast about what you've achieved. You can boast about where you eat and dine and holiday and all those things. You can boast. But not if you know you need him. Because then the spotlight's on him. You only get on your knees and serve. And you only get on your knees and humbly love when you've gone to the cross and confessed your need. So look, if we're going to move in this direction of not envying, not boasting, not being proud, then what we need to understand a need. And second little thing, lastly, you need to look at Jesus. Look at how Jesus treats them. Look at his lovely response. It's very brief. Verse 33, they they tell him what they want. We want our sight, Lord. Verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them. And touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. He had compassion and he touched them. Compassion. He felt for them deep inside. He was troubled by what they lacked. He cared. And so he touched them. Striking throughout Matthew's gospel, whenever anyone is in need, Jesus touches them. That is, he gets involved, he condescends, he doesn't withdraw, he doesn't see someone in need, someone desperate, and go, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Others keep a safe distance, Jesus moves in close, because he's the king who loves people. So if you and I are going to move in a direction of not envying, not boasting, not bragging, not dishonouring others, you've got, to wait, you've got to know you've got a deep need like these guys did. Two, you just do need to remember who Jesus is. He is very wonderful. And our hearts will more naturally move the spotlight onto him and off ourselves. So love Jesus as, the, as God, 
as the infinitely condescending God. There is no one else who, who lived at such a great height, who came such an extraordinary distance, who humbled himself, condescended quite so much as him. For you. Love him as the infinitely condescending God. Love him as the humble man, always willing to give of himself to those beneath him. Because no, he didn't view people that way. Not comparing, not proclaiming, not boasting, not envying. Just giving. He's a condescending God. He's the humble man. Love him as the crucified saviour. Because his love is... Well, it's a love in action. It's a love that changed the destiny of anyone who trusts him. Love him. Love him. And therefore let his love change you. Love doesn't envy, doesn't boast, isn't proud, doesn't look down. Love looks like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, of course, in many ways, we're very familiar with these truths. We're familiar with uh, the fact that our hearts envy, often in in, in small ways. But sometimes we can allow those to to grow and fester. Father, we know the temptation, even of the things we've done this week, to boast, to proclaim, to do our own PR. We know how easy it is to, to view people for how useful they are. But Father, thank you that you never view people that way. Thank you in the Lord Jesus there is one who was consistently humble. Never felt the need to compare and envy others. To unwarrantly boast or brag. Wasn't proud. Had a stable status before you, before men. And therefore was able to love to give himself, to give himself in love. Father, would we recognize who we are? That we have nothing before you. We have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to boast about. But we do have a wonderful God in Jesus Christ. So would our hearts orientate to him? So we care less about ourselves, less about our own status. We don't worry about proclaiming who we are. We worry about proclaiming him. Would that be for our good and for the honor of your name? Amen.